Well, it has been such a delight to be here. <clears throat> well, she let me know right away. <laughs> and I discovered it's even more important to those people whose birthday comes around Christmas that they make something of it. And I discovered also a long time ago that you don't <clears throat> give what she calls Tuesday gifts. Like uh, for your anniversary or Valentine's Day, you give her an iron. That's a Tuesday gift. And boy, you're right, my wife is a romantic. And I'm proud of it. I've been going into churches for years. There are two things that I always look for in a church that to me helps me to see just what kind of church that is, what the spirit of that church is. There are two things that I have discovered through the years are telltale signs that indicate the real life and nature of what's going on in that church. Number one, is the staff and especially the office staff, the secretaries. You walk into a church office and the secretaries are friendly and happy and are smiling, that's a good sign. But I've been in some churches in a meeting there, I walked into the office and the secretaries didn't know who I was and didn't particularly want me to be there and they were gruff and they didn't seem to be having a good time. That's a that's a telltale sign about what's happening in the church to me. The other thing, and the most important, is I always look for the pastor's wife. Whatever is going on in that church will settle in her face, in her countenance. And when there is the wife of that pastor whose face is drawn and whose countenance is cast down, and she's not really into the meeting or into the service, I know there's something bad wrong going on. Maybe not in their own life, but in the church. Because every accusation, every unkindness, I believe the wife takes it far greater and more seriously than does the husband. She bears it all. And uh, the countenance of the wife's face reveals so much, so much. And Joyce, you are smiling, aren't you? Amen. All right, I want, uh, that, that has nothing to do with anything I'm going to say, but uh, I want you to open your Bibles today again to 2 Cor uh, Corinthians, this time to the second chapter, and I want to read verses 12 through 17 to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Beginning in this verse and all the way through chapter 6, we have a kind of parenthesis where Paul deviates for a while from his main subject and gives us a very interesting section in which he defends his ministry and his apostleship. And what we have in verses 12 and following to the end of this chapter is kind of an introduction to this section in which he's going to be discussing and, as I said, defending his apostolic ministry. So we're reading kind of an introduction to that. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I want to read again verse 14 because this is the main verse we want to zero in on this morning. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ 
and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. I've always been a sucker for any book that had the word secret in its title. When I first started preaching, I would go to the bookstore and, and I'd see those books and I'd buy them. The secret of preaching, the secret of prayer, the secret of power, the secret of soul winning. I'd buy all those books that had the word secret in the title because I knew that all those men who did great things for God didn't do them because they worked hard or were talented or gifted. They just had a little secret, and if I knew what their secret was, I could do what they did. And so I was always intrigued by those kind of books and always by those kinds of sermons that said the secret of this and that, and I wanted in on that secret. And it didn't applied just to spiritual things. It applied to every facet of my life. I have a book called The Secret of Power Golf. And I have one called The Secret of Better Tennis. And I have one, The Secret of Making Money on Wall Street. I, I have that also. We're intrigued by that. We're intrigued by the word secret. We want to, we love when somebody says, let me tell you a secret. We like to be in on something that nobody else is in on. Uh, there's something about it that's intriguing. I, I, of course, I, I, never, I never would buy one of these magazines, never have, but, uh, I, but uh, you know, you see them at the checkout counters in the grocery stores, you know, the National Enquirer and the Boston Globe and the Star and such as that. And I, I've noticed, uh, I, you know, I, I don't buy them, but I read as fast as I can while I'm standing in the <laughs> checkout line. Uh, <clears throat> And the headlines are so intriguing. Boy, you just, ah, you just but I, but I, I, I know that if I, if I opened it up right on the inside, it'd be disappointing. How do you know? <laughs> mm. <clears throat> but I, uh, I remember, I remember seeing one said, uh, the secret diet of doctors, you know, like they know something they're not telling us. <laughs> and then there was one, the secret, the beauty secret of the stars. Great. Well, I want to talk to you about a secret today. I know that word is overused, but there is a secret of the life of a man by the name of Paul, always fascinated by him as you are. But here is a man that all of us, in a good way, envy and admire, and wondered so many times, what was it that made Paul different? No one answer, of course, is adequate. But one of the things that I appreciate about 2 Corinthians is that of all the letters that Paul wrote, none is as personal as is this letter. Paul bears his heart in a way in which he does in no other letter. He does something that he rarely did. He is defending himself, and he is authenticating his own ministry and his own apostleship. And as he launches into this section concerning that ministry, he gives this passage, as I said, in an introduction, in an introductory way. And here I think Paul reveals the secret of the great life in which he lived. How was Paul able to maintain his spiritual life in the face of all the difficulties that he had? We sometimes forget that Paul was not necessarily liked by everybody. Now, we all just love him and like him, you know, but we don't realize or we forget that back in New Testament days, uh, they didn't hold him in awe like we hold him in awe today. There are a lot of people who didn't like him. He was persona non grata in an awful lot of places. One of the reasons he wrote the letter to the Romans is because there had been so many bad things said about him that he was trying to pave the way so that when he arrived, they would understand what he was about and what kind of man he was and what he believed. And so Paul struggled not only against the devil, 
and the world, but he struggled in many instances against his own brethren in the Lord. And Paul is making a tremendous statement here. He says, when I came to Troas, he said, there was a door open for me, a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. But he said, my spirit was restless because Titus wasn't there. And so he said, I had to depart. I had to turn my back on this great evangelistic opportunity. And my heart was vexed and my spirit was low. And so I turned and walked away from it. But then he comes to verse 14, and the first word is the word but. But, Paul says, don't misunderstand. Don't get the wrong idea. It may look like that that was failure. And it may seem to be that I was defeated. But even though I had to go on to Macedonia and turn my back on that golden opportunity, but I want you to know this, thanks be to God who always leads me in his triumph in Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, even when I had to turn away from that evangelistic opportunity, even when I had to change my plans, even then God was leading me in victory. I do not want you to misunderstand, he says, that was not defeat. It may look like defeat to you, and you may mark it down as defeat, but I want you to know, but thanks be to God, who every time I take a step, he's leading me in victory. He's leading me in triumph. Now, what is it that makes Paul able to say that? What is the secret of Paul being able to stand in the middle of broken plans, in the middle of accusations and misunderstandings, and standing right in the middle of the rubble to be able to say, thanks be to God who always leads me in triumph. To be able to say that, not just to mouth it as some slogan because people expect it, but to say it and to know it to stand in the middle of difficulty and tragedy and disappointment and say, thanks be to God who always leads me in victory. I'd like to know the secret of how a person is able to say that. And he gives it here in verse 14, but he gives it in a way that's hard for us today to understand. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. Now, I want you to focus on that phrase. He always leads us in his triumph in Christ. Now, that is really the translation of a Greek word that the Corinthians were very familiar with in those days. And the moment they read that word, they would understand what Paul was talking about. They would get the picture and thus get the message. But today, we don't, we're not familiar with that, and so we read through that, and we miss, I think, the great significance of what Paul is referring to here. Paul is referring to a custom that was well known in the Roman uh, Empire and the Roman army of that day. When the army went out to wage battle, once they had won that battle and secured that victory, which was always... The commander-in-chief would immediately dispatch a runner, a herald, and this man would run back to the city of Rome and would run through the streets of Rome heralding that the victory had been won and the conquering hero was on his way home. By the way, that word herald is our word for preach, and that's what preaching is. Preaching is just going through the streets telling everybody the victory's been won and the commander-in-chief is on his way. That's what preaching is. So he would run through the streets of Rome, heralding the victory, announcing the victory, and immediately they would get ready for a celebration. It was going to be a mighty celebration. They would open the doors of the temples, and there was a special incense that they burned uh, in those particular days and those occasions. And if you walked out of your house one morning and you smell that incense in the air, you knew we were going to have a celebration. There's going to be a parade. This is a day of victory. And so everybody would line the streets waiting for that triumphant procession that would come, and here it comes. 
and I'll not take the time to describe it. You can read it in, in the encyclopedia, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's described there. But uh, it was a mighty procession uh, headed up by singers and priests, headed up by those who would be carrying other vials of incense and that, uh, and that fragrance uh, filling the air. People would be lining the streets, throwing confetti and garland and shouting. It was a beautiful procession. But the main figure in that drama was the conquering hero. He would be riding in a gold-plated chariot drawn by white horses. And uh, when the crowds caught sight of him, they just went wild. They screamed and hollered, for here was their conquering hero who had brought them another victory. Now with him, of course, were the chained uh, prisoners who would be made slaves, and everybody saw those. But many times there was a particular thing done that I think Paul is referring to here. Many times when they would win that victory, they would take the officers, they would take the officers of the defeated army and put them in chains and would chain them to that chariot so that as the conquering hero in his chariot rolled through the streets of Rome, these conquered men were dragged along behind in humiliation and in the dust. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Paul is saying, I was an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ has conquered me and has made me his slave. And he has chained me to his chariot. And everywhere I go, I'm simply being led about in his triumph in Christ. Paul is saying, I have been conquered. And I have surrendered myself, unconditional surrender, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And have been placed in the chains of his lordship, chained to that chariot. And everywhere he goes, I follow along. I am dragged along. That's the idea he's saying. As a matter of fact, the New English Bible reads like this. Thanks be to God who always leads us about captives in Christ's triumphant procession. Captives in Christ's triumphant procession. So there's the picture. Paul has been conquered. Paul is placed in chains. Those chains are fastened to the chariot, and everywhere that conquering hero goes, he leads Paul in that triumphant procession. Captives in Christ's triumphant procession. Now, what's the secret? Here's the secret. If you want to be a conqueror, you must first be conquered. If you want to be a master, you must first be mastered. If you want to be an overcomer, you must first be overcome. How is it that Paul can say everywhere, thanks be to God, he always leads me in his triumph? How can that be, Paul? Well, because I'm his captive. Everywhere I go now, I'm a conqueror because I'm a, his captive. And everywhere he leads me, he leads me in victory because I've been overcome by him. If you want to be a conqueror, you must first be conquered. If you want to exercise authority, you must first submit to authority. You see, I think one of the great troubles in our day is that all of us want to be teachers without ever having been students. We want to exercise authority, but we're not at all interested in submitting to authority. We want to be conquerors, but we're not interested in being conquered. Actually, what we want to do is we want to ride up front with the Lord in that chariot. That's where I want to be. I preached this down in Florida some time ago, and we went out to a man's house afterwards for dinner, and uh, he said to me, you know, preacher, I, I, I like that sermon tonight. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, the only thing I didn't like about it was that idea of being in chains and, and captive. He said, I don't know. That just didn't seem right to me. He said, I think the sermon would be better if you'd leave that out. I said, brother, that is the sermon. <laughs> that is the sermon. But I understood. It, it's not, it, 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 there's something about the flesh, something about us, that we don't like that idea. I like to ride up front with the Lord, sort of help him drive the chariot. You know? Sometimes I say, Lord, 
We seem to be moving mighty slow. Can we go faster? Sometimes I say to the Lord, Lord, this is an old bumpy road we're on. We've passed up a lot of super highways. Lord, this road is full of potholes and chug holes and traps and snares. And Lord, couldn't we get on a better road? And sometimes I've said, Lord, why don't we pull over the side here and have a little picnic, rest for a while. I'm weary. I always like to sit up front, try to help the Lord drive. But what Paul is saying is this. I've learned this secret. This is it. This is it. Everywhere Jesus goes, he goes in triumph. Everywhere Jesus goes, he goes in victory. Everywhere Jesus goes, he goes in victory. And therefore, if I am chained to his chariot, thanks be to God, he's always leading me in his triumph in Christ. If you want to be conquered, a conqueror, you must first be conquered. Our victory in Jesus begins and is sustained with his victory over us. I think it could be said today that to the extent that I am conquered by Jesus, to that extent I am a conqueror in Jesus. I think I could say today that if there is an area of my life in which there is repeated constant failure, it simply means there is an area in my life that I have not yet yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If I want to be a conqueror, I must first be conquered. Now, I want us to look at this for a few moments, and I'd like to share two or three things with you. This victory that is in Christ. First thing, this is God's victory through His Son. This is God's victory through His Son. The King James reads something like this, Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph. But that's not the correct reading. It's correct here in this translation, the New American Standard, and in the others. He says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph. In His triumph. Now that's important. It is not Paul's triumph. It is not Paul's victory. Paul is not the one who's riding in that chariot. It is His victory. It is His triumph. Thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph. And what a relief that is. What a relief that is to recognize that it is not my responsibility to win the victory, as we call it, as we speak of it. That's not my responsibility. It is not my responsibility to be victorious. It is not my responsibility to be overcoming all of these things. It is His triumph in Christ. Not mine. Not mine. And I tell you, when I discovered that one day, it was a great day of liberation for me. I remember I was preaching through Matthew, and I came to Matthew 16, where Peter saw Jesus talking to Peter about the church, and Jesus made a statement. And you know, have you ever noticed that sometimes you can read a passage of Scripture over and over and over for 20 years, and then one day you read it, and God has slipped in a new word, and that you hadn't noticed it before? I mean, why one night while you were asleep, the Lord just kind of put in a new word there, wasn't there? Well, I'd read that passage a thousand and a hundred one times. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I did a double take, double take, and I said, what? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, Lord, uh, I thought I was supposed to build it. You know, we have a way in Baptist circles of calling churches by the pastor's name. This is Brother Adrian's church. Where are you going next week? Oh, I'm going down Bellevue. Oh, yeah, that's, that's Dr. Rogers' church. Yeah, that's his church. First Baptist Church, Dallas. Oh, that's Dr. Criswell's church, isn't it? Now, you know, we understand what that means, but what happens is that we preachers sometimes begin feeling sort of like, well, it is our church in the sense that, man, I tell you, boy, it's responsible for us. I'm responsible for that church, everything. I've got to bear the burden of all of these thousands of people. I've got to build this church. I've got to build this church. And Jesus comes along and he says, this is my church. I will build my church. Uh, Lord, I thought I was supposed to build. He said, no, that's been one of our problems. You mean, you mean you build the church? Right. And then I noticed something else. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. I said, do you mean to tell me this is not my church? This is your church? I said, amen. Welcome to it, Lord. Glad to get shut of it. Boy, I was never uh, glad to know that it's the Lord's church. 
the responsibility for production, the responsibility for results, the responsibility for growth is primarily not upon the pastor or anybody else. It is Jesus who is building the church. Now, we have a responsibility. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first of all, we need to understand that the responsibility for victory is not ours. It is His triumph. I love the story of David going up against Goliath. And, and uh, that was a, you know, they must have fought strange wars back in those days. I mean, David was taking lunch to his brothers who were in war. You know, uh, you don't do that today. It sort of sounds strange. And went down there and saw that big old bruiser Goliath over there making fun of God, making fun of God's people. And there's all the fellas around here cowering in fear. And, of course, David goes up and says, what's the matter? And they say, well, you're just a runt you don't understand. And and David said, listen, on the way over here, I, I took care of a couple of ferocious beasts. I think I, can, I think I can handle old Goliath. And David goes out there with a slingshot and five smooth stones and looks that giant in the kneecaps, and he said, <laughs> the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. He has delivered you into my hands. It's not my battle. It's the Lord's battle. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church. It's not my day. It's the Lord's day. It's not my work. It's the Lord's work. You know, for years it has bugged me that God uses people I don't approve of. Does that ever bother you? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I was traumatized the first time I saw an all-millennialist lead someone to Jesus. Because I've been brought up to believe that only premillennialists were soul winners and that God wouldn't use anybody else. And it just, I mean, it, it traumatized me for a long time. Strange, isn't it, the kind of people God uses? Why? It's His work. It's His church. It's His victory. This is God's victory through His Son. Secondly, it becomes ours through submission. It becomes ours through submission. It is God's victory, but it becomes ours through submission. I said a moment ago, the responsibility for results, the responsibility for bearing fruit, or uh, producing the fruit, the responsibility is not ours. It's His. We have a responsibility. What is that? That responsibility is to make certain that every moment, every hour, every day, I am chained to His chariot. That's my responsibility. To make certain that moment by moment, day by day, my life, in all of its aspects, as far as I know, as far as I'm able to ascertain, that my life is unconditionally yielded to His Lordship. That's my responsibility. My primary responsibility is not to the people they have. I have a responsibility there, but my primary responsibility is to myself, making certain that I'm living chained to his chariot. Jesus said, if any man comes to me and drink, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus said, you provide the riverbed, and I'll provide the rivers and I know this much that people are blessed and ministered to when I was a pastor, not so much by what I did, but they were blessed and ministered to by the overflow of my life. First of all, the farmer had to be partaker of his own crops. And Paul said to Timothy, you must save yourself and those who hear you. I give attention to myself. I make certain that as much as I'm able to understand, the Spirit of God is filling me and my hands are chained to His chariot. And then folks are blessed by the overflow from my life. This becomes our victory simply by submission. You say, ah, is that all? If you say that, then you've never tried it. I think one of the greatest illustrations of this is found in Matthew chapter 8. you remember the centurion who came to Jesus? And he said, Lord, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, well, I'll come to your house. 
And he said, oh, no, Lord, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. It's interesting, there was another nobleman in uh, John 4 who said, Lord, come to my house, and Jesus sort of rebuked him. He said, I'm not going to come to your house. I don't need to come to your house. Your boy's all right. Here, this man says, don't come to my house, and Jesus said, yes, I will. I mean, you can't put Jesus in a straitjacket. I mean, he's going to work the way he wants to work. But this centurion comes to him and he says, Lord, uh, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, uh, I'll come to your house. He said, oh, no, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you even to come under my roof. He said, for I also am a man under authority. And I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, do, and he does. And when he said that, Jesus marveled and said, I have not found such great faith, no, not in all of Israel. Now, I have to confess to you that, first of all, I didn't understand what the man said, and secondly, I didn't see what it had to do with faith. It didn't sound so great to me. I must have missed something. He said, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, do this, and he does it. He says, Lord, just speak the word. And Jesus said, I've never seen such great faith. Well, I, I didn't see what was so great about what the fellow said. Let's look at it. I'll come to your house. He said, oh, no, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my room. Just speak the word, and my servant will live. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say, this one go, and he goes, and to this one do this, and he doesn't. Now, the man says, for I also am a man under authority. And he was. He was under the authority of the emperor. Now, you would expect him to say, and when I'm told to do this, I do it. But he doesn't say that. I'm a man under authority. And I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to this one, do that, and he does it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm under the authority of the emperor. And therefore, being under authority, I have authority over these 100 men. That's the principle by which I live. And I say to them, do this, and they do that. The only reason I have authority over these 100 men is because I'm under the authority of the emperor. If I were to rebel against the authority of the emperor, I would lose the authority I have over these 100 men. The principle I live by is this. If I want to be a conqueror, I must first be conquered. If I want to be a master, I must first be master. I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now, the key, though, to understanding the whole bit is that word, I also, or I too in some translations. I also am a man under authority. He says, Lord... Just speak the word, and my servant will live. For I also, like you, am a man under authority. Do you know why Jesus said that was such a great statement? Because that centurion saw something that nobody else was seeing. He said, Jesus, you and I are just alike. You and I live by the same principle. For you are also a man under authority. And you don't have to run around doing your own errands. You just say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, do that, and he does it. Lord, you don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is to speak the word, and it'll be done. For Lord, just like you, that's the way it is with me. I am under authority, and I have authority. I don't have to run my own errands. I just speak the word, and it's done for me. Lord, you live by the same power and principle. You don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word, and it shall be done. You see, the principle by which the centurion lived under authority, exercising authority, the principle by which Jesus Christ himself lived under the authority of the Father, and therefore he had the authority of the Father over demons and the devil and death, sickness and suffering. Jesus lived a life submitted to the Father. The Son can do nothing of Himself. The Son can do nothing of Himself. The Son has come to do the will of the Father. His will is the meat of my life. It is written to me in the volume of the book, I am come to do thy will. The principle by which Paul lived, the principle by which the centurion lived, the principle by which Jesus lived, the same principle by which you and I are to live. This becomes ours through submission. 
my number one responsibility is to make certain that day by day I'm living chained to the chariot. The last word is, not only is this God's victory through His Son, not only it becomes ours through submission, but it remains ours in any situation. It remains ours in any situation. Listen to what he says. But thanks be to God who always, I like that word, always, always, not sometimes, not most of the times, not on good days, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now put those two words together, always and in every place. Now that's, that's what you really need to pay attention to. Always, always, always. Well, now, I can't say always. I, I, you know, sometimes the Lord does. I mean, I had a good day back in 87, I, I remember. But how in the world can I say He always? And in every place, time and space, always and every place, time and space, always, all the time, any time, every time, any place, every place, all places, Paul says, I'm living in victory. Paul says, I'm always walking in a triumphant procession. Always. What about, what about being shipwrecked, Paul? What about being stoned? What about uh, being cast into prison? Thanks be to God who always leads me in his triumph. And every place. What do you mean every place, Paul? Every place. In the hull of a ship, in the depths of the sea, lying on the ground under a hail of stones, in Roman prison. Always, in every place, every place, the fragrance going out all the time. Fragrance going out all the time. Now, to some people, it kills them. To others, it brings life. Did you know that, that death is just as, a, as a, a legal response to the preaching of the gospel as is life? It really is. To some people, the fragrance means life. To others, it means death. Paul said, everywhere I go, the fragrance is there. God is manifesting through me, expressing through me His victory, His love. His knowledge everywhere I go. It remains ours in every situation. I want to say something to you, and I have thought long and long and long about this. I believe that if you and I live chained to the chariot, there is no conceivable situation in life in which God cannot give us victory. Whatever the situation. And see, Paul is going to be talking about some desperate situations in the next two or three chapters. And he says, before I get into all that mess, I want you to know something. Every time I put myself down there in the pit, I want you to know I'm in victory. He goes on in chapter 4. I love chapter 4. He says, sometimes I've been knocked down, but never knocked out. I have discovered in my life to do something. I'm learning. I won't say I've learned. I say I'm learning. By the time I think I've learned it, God shows me that I haven't. But I'm learning to do something. When I wake up and find myself in a difficult and adverse situation, you know what I do? The first thing I do is to check to see if I'm chained to the chariot. Let's check here and make certain I haven't missed God somewhere. I haven't disobeyed him. I haven't rebelled against him. No. Boy, I've checked all the chains. They're, they're all tight and secure. And I tell you what, I don't understand. Last night I went to sleep in the will of God and I woke up this morning in this mess and all this trouble going on. I checked to see if my hands are still chained to the chariot. And if there are, if they are, I can say two things about this situation. Number one, God led me into it. I mean, if I'm chained to his chariot, I couldn't have gotten there any other way, could I? God led me into it. Number two, he's already overcome it. Why? Because I'm simply following him. He's leading me in his triumphant procession. Folks, do you know what that means? That means that every time I put my foot down, I'm walking on conquered ground. Everywhere I put my foot, following in his triumphant procession, I'm walking on conquered ground. Jesus has gone before me. Remains ours in any 
and every situation, good times and bad times. You know what it is? You know what victory boils down to? Victory boils down to just this, being chained to that chariot, no matter what, no matter what. I was in New Orleans some time ago in a meeting. I was sitting on the front row waiting for the service to start. Two women came in and they sat down behind me and they were talking. I couldn't help but overhear their conversation. One of the women's son had been in a wreck, car wreck the week before. Another boy in that car had been killed, but her son was all right. They were talking about this and this woman said to the mother, Oh, I'm so glad your boy is all right. And the mother said, Yes, God is good. But I couldn't help wondering as I sat there, wonder what that other mother was saying. What do you think that other mother was saying? Was she saying God is good? What if her son had been the one killed in that wreck? Would she be sitting there this morning saying God is good? Malachi the Lord says, I am the Lord, I change not. I want to tell you something, folks. If God was good yesterday, He's good today. If God was there last year, He's still there today. If God was good ten years ago, He's good today. He does not change. The victory of which Paul is speaking remains ours in any, any situation. One of the first churches I pastored, well, it was the first church I pastored, Black Gum, Oklahoma. First Baptist Church of Black Gum, Oklahoma. It was back off the main highway, off the main road. I mean, it was back in the hills of uh, eastern Oklahoma. And uh, driving up there, you'd run across two or three of these little branches. You know, uh, have any of you been on those where, where there's not a bridge because the water is never more than that deep, you know. It's just so crystal clear you can see right through it. And it's just a little shallow thing and the road runs right through that little creek and there's no bridge or anything because, you know, it's always just about an inch deep. Well, I remember it's Easter Sunday morning I was driving up to Black Gum and I had on a new suit, Easter suit, sky blue, had on new shoes and new tie and new shirt. I was decked out for Easter. And uh, driving, I was driving my 46 Ford, and uh, when, I, when I would drive over there, I'd practice on my sermon. I'd be preaching the sermon. I'd time myself and uh, see how long, uh, see if I could stretch it out to a, re uh, to a respectable length. <clears throat> And so I, I wasn't paying much attention. You know, I'd been on that road so many times I could drive it with my eyes blindfolded. And uh, I hadn't thought too much about the fact that the week before we'd had all these torrential rains. I mean, rains, rains, rains. But thank God today, Easter Sunday, was a sky blue day. Uh, and uh, no rain, sun shining. I didn't think about where all that water had to go. It had been raining all week long. And I was driving along, preaching my sermon. All of a sudden, my car kind of bucked. and I was halfway conscious of coming over a little stream. Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, my car kind of just stalled on me. And, and all of a sudden, my feet were wet. And I looked down, and water was coming into my car. And what had happened is all, that little thing is usually about that deep had swollen, and it was coming in, and my car was stalled. And uh, I got out of the car, took off my new shoes and rolled up my Sunday legs and uh, walked the rest of the way about a mile to the church. He said, Preacher, does this have a point? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Now, one day, I came to Jesus Christ and I gave unconditional surrender to Him and He put me in his chains and chained me to the chariot and we took off and it was great I mean it was great on a nice smooth super highway just tooling along there having a wonderful time praise God hallelujah Jesus saves I'm so glad to be a Christian amen trust in Jesus all the way and then one day we turned off super highway and got on old bumpy dirt road I didn't care much for, but I mean, you know, I can take a little bit of this. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm just trusting Jesus all the way. And uh, the road got a little bit rougher. 
dust, dust in my eyes and gritty in my teeth and hitting a bump or two here and uh, like driving on a washboard and kind of rough. I don't know. Well, anyway, boy, I, I praise God. Hallelujah. I'm saved. I'm just going to trust Jesus all the way. And then one day I noticed my feet began to get wet. And, uh, well, sure enough, he was leading me through a little stream. But not to worry, praise God. Hallelujah. Just trust in Jesus all the way. Kept on going. The water began to get up to my knees. And, hmm, well, praise God. Hallelujah. I'm just going to trust Jesus all the way. I'm trusting him. Just trusting him. And the water got up to about my waist. Well, amen. We kept on going. The water got up to my chest. <sighs> Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. <laughs> and then one day the water got up to my chin. And I said, if I don't get out of these chains, he's going to drown me. <laughs> and that's when I broke the chains and bailed out. Now listen to me. I'll tell you what victory is. Victory is staying chained to the chariot even when you go under the water for the third time. That's victory. You may die. Your heart may break. You may bury your loved ones. Victory is that in the midst of it all, I've stayed chained to his chariot. That's victory. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his victory in Christ. Would you pray with me? Just a moment or two, quiet. Just to let the Holy Spirit press home to our hearts what He's been saying to us during these days. As we leave today, are we leaving chained to His chariot? I believe that's the crucial question for my own heart, my own life. The Bible says faith is the victory. It doesn't say faith obtains the victory or faith wins the victory. It said faith is the victory. Just believing is victory. Holding on to the faith, grasping the faith in the face of anything, that's victory. Father, today we thank you for these days we've had together, for all that you've said to us and all that you have done for us in our hearts. Lord, it has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I pray that as we go, that all the seed that's been sown in our hearts will bring forth good harvest. Thank you for this time together, for showing us your love in so many ways in these brief few days for expanding our hearts for expanding our praise to you we thank you for it all in Jesus name Amen
Let me tell you the mistake that you make when you go to a conference. The mistake is this, that you try to remember what the speakers said. That's a mistake. Now, it's all on tape, and I want you to have it, but don't make the mistake of trying to remember what the speakers have said. What the speakers have said really is of no consequence. I want you to ask yourself, what has God said to you this week? Don't try to remember somebody's sermon, somebody's outline. Well, you can get the tape. That's all right. I don't mean not to have it. But the Bible says, how shall they believe on him whom they've not heard? It doesn't say in whom, although it's translated that way sometimes. Whom? You're to hear him. Now, I can tell you, beyond the shadow of any doubt, that God has said some things to me this week. I have written them down so that I can remember what God said to me. I want you, before it gets cold, to write down what God said, not what Adrian said, not what Charles said, not what Manley said, not what Ron said, not what uh, Stephen said, but what God said to you. Has he said something to you? Just nod your head. Has he said some things to you? All right, now, that's, that's the important thing. The problem is that we go away from conferences many times with notebooks full like we're getting information. We have not come for information. We've come for instructions to hear God. So write it down, pray it in, live it out. God has been good. A wonderful, wonderful conference. Jean Lush, thank you for coming. You're a precious lady. I tell you, she, this, this woman has one of the most infectious spirits. Lovely. She's one of the youngest girls I've ever met. I thank God for you, the brightness and beauty of your life. Let's stand together. Jim Whitmire, the music has been incredible. What a blessing. Folks, I just don't know how it could have been any better last night. And we saw all the names of our great God. And all of those names are in one name. His name is Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus. We want to stay chained. Because in that bondage is the only liberty there is. And in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.